Uh, welcome to church. I-, I love going through books of the Bible, particularly this part of Isaiah. It's been a great journey thinking through what God is saying to us here and thinking about what that means for the way that we live. Uh, tonight, uh, after the, the talk, we'll have time for questions. There's a number up on the screen that you can text your questions into. Um, so if you want to text questions along the way, that w- we look at a number of things. Uh, we told you last week we'll be coming in and thinking through the, the issue of abortion and how this touches with the passage and how we think about that as, as Christians and what God has to say to that. So it's going to be a good night uh, doing that. Well, one other random thing I want to throw in here is uh, we've started September, we've started spring, and we've got a new staff member. Can I just get Ryan to stand up? Look at this. He's actually on staff now. So Ryan's working full-time on staff to help us to think through how we glorify God in our services and how we can communicate well as a communications coordinator across all of EV. So great to have you on board. Why don't we pray? Let's pray together. Lord God, you know where we've been and where our minds are at and the things that are challenging us. And yet you've chosen to bring us here tonight to hear this word so that we might reframe our way of thinking and life around your view. So we ask by your spirit this evening that you'd shape and mold us into the likeness of your son. We'd understand your word, but more than that, we'd see it change the way we think about life and hope. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, we're gonna, there's a number of uh, points that will come up tonight, three on the first page and really one on the second. Uh, so just kind of for your, for your spacing, they'll come up on the screen so you'll see them as we go along. But I want to start by asking this question, what is the difference between wishful thinking and Christian hope? What's the difference between wishful thinking and Christian hope? The world around us is, is saying that we really just need to have wishful thinking and that's the way to get through struggles of life. When tragedy strikes, when suffering sets in, what do we do? Well, the world says, well, just think positive thoughts. You know, Dory, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. That's such helpful words. <laughs> they're warm-hearted truths, they're, they're sincere sentiments, but the question is, do they actually do anything? It strikes me that wishful thinking and warm sentiments that we hear from the world around us, and often we find ourselves saying, well, they're comforting in the moment, don't actually change the situation that's before us. Now, there's a helpfulness to empathy, uh, but, it, but it can't change what's going on. What we find when we come to the God of the Bible, though, the, the God of the universe, is that the Christian response to tragedy and suffering and impending destruction provides a far more powerful solution, a far more powerful way to live. So come with me to Isaiah 36, because my hope that as we come to this part of God's Word today, that we'll have an aha moment or a that's right moment, where we remember how great it is to have the Word of a true and living God. You'll see something tonight of of the power of God, and hopefully by His Spirit, He'll embolden you to live with a new lease of life in the face of suffering and trial as we work out how we respond to the world around us. As we get to chapter 36 of Isaiah, um, something changes in the whole way the book works. We've been hearing Isaiah speak of what is to come, speaking to the northern part of of God's people in Israel, Judah, and the southern tribes had gone off, and the ten tribes are up north, and the two down the bottom, and really we just got Jerusalem left at this point. And the first 35 chapters, we've been hearing of what God would do in the future, that He's going to bring in these Assyrians and other nations to punish His people for rejecting Him and not listening to Him. And we've been hearing this happening, and the question that's been going on in our heads the whole time is, when will this happen? In fact, I've got a number of questions from people uh, saying, but what does this mean for the people at the time? How are they to take that? We've, we've applied God's Word, and we've seen how they're all pointing forward to the fuller and truer picture of Jesus who's come and died in our place as the true King. We've, we've seen that each week as we've gone through. But what does it actually mean for the people there and then? When were these events going to happen? Well, the reason I haven't told you is because Isaiah doesn't tell us until tonight. Because as we get to this passage, we step into history, not the future of what will happen to them, but what is going on right now. Isaiah 36 verse 2. 
Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman, along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Elohim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to him. Like, we're in real history now. These are events that actually went on. The royal spokesman from Assyria said, Tell Hezekiah, who is uh, the king of Judah, the great king, the king of Assyria, says this, What are you relying on? Now, I've, I've got to confess, I find it really hard to follow who these kings are and what's going on and where they are. Do you, do you find that? You're reading the Bible, like, who are these weird people with weird names? At least on Father's Day, there's more name ideas for us as we think through potential fatherhood in the future. But there's one way that we can actually work out who um, these kings are. We're going to meet the king of Assyria called Sennacherib. And one of the ways you know that Sennacherib is, is, is not a good guy is because he's going to come and snack on your rib, Sennacherib. Great memory hook, you can use that for free. Don't worry about any payment. I know that you're saying, we weren't going to pay you for that. Yeah. So at this moment, we're brought face to face with point number one, a fearful foe. A fearful foe. To give you the weight of the moment that's happened, we've got to understand who this King Sennacherib is. He's conquered all the kingdoms to the north. Like, this man's a killing machine. He's wiped out the nations on the way through. Uh, Listen to Isaiah 37, a bit further on, verse 8 to 13. The royal spokesman sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Say this to King Hezekiah of Judah, Don't let your God, on whom you rely, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem won't be handed over to the king of Assyria. Look, You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries. They completely destroyed them. Will you be rescued? No. Did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroy rescue them? Like Gozan and Haran and Rezef and the Edenites in Telassar. And what of the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharim, Hena or Iva or however you say all those places? The point is, he's just wiped out so many people. And it can't be like, you know, he's, he's been moving from, from south to north. Like, you know, the cargo wasn't much to knock over. But he's kind of kept coming. But the other way around, he's going north to south. But then he kind of moves up and Dunedin's gone, wiped out Dunners. We don't need Dunedin. Uh, they, they kind of didn't, they were too busy just partying at Dunedin universities. Um, and so he just kind of came through there, up into Christchurch. Christchurch kind of wiped out. Up through Nelson, Blenheim, all that's gone. Then to Wellington, that was a walk over piece of cake. You know, we have to Palmerston North and they're wiped out, but I don't know why you want to do anything with Palmerston North because I don't know what's there. Um, sorry if you're from Palmy, we love you too. Just as a side note, no one laughed. We, <laughs> we do, it's true. And, you're, and, and kind of, you, you just see this coming up to the city that matters, Auckland, right? That's the city that matters. And you, oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and you can see this, this pressure coming up and you're thinking, we know what's happening here. We're next. You know that sinking feeling you get when you're in trouble? Uh, maybe you're a good kid and you don't know what that feels like. But for me, that was something that I felt often. Standing outside the principal's office or outside the classroom going, ah, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Not, not knowing what punishment I'd get when I went back in and, and, and hearing. And you kind of get that feeling in your gut of impending doom, either of the principal or your parents when you get home and have to tell them what happened. Have you, have you ever had that feeling? Well, this is what's going on here, but a far bigger feeling than the schoolyard banter that we feel. It's more like Jerusalem, God's people in Jerusalem, receiving a terminal diagnosis. You're over, you're gone, you're spent. They are at your front door. More than that, there's a 20-ton gorilla at your front door, and it wants your bananas. That's what's happening. It's saying, you are gone, I'm going to smash you. You feel the weight of what's going on at this point in God's Word. And then Sennacherib's royal spokesman, he kind of jaunts them. He comes out to have a little chat at the fence. But to tell them, come on, just give up. You know, who is this? So he starts out, 36 verse 4, what are you relying on? Oh, what a question. Just give up. What have you got? And he kind of then talks through Egypt. Are you thinking that Egypt's going to come in and rescue you? You know what those Egyptians are like. People kind of bank on them, and then they kind of help for a bit, and they turn on you, and they become like a staff that puts splinters in your hands. They're just going to turn on you. You can't run to them. 
in verse 7 of 36. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God, right? The Christian answer, the godly people answer. (laughs) He says, you think your God will save you? Hezekiah, your king, he removed all the high places, the places that you worshipped God in all over the country. He removed them. Do you think your God is happy with that? Now, what he didn't know was that God was happy with that. Hezekiah had some good moments and he actually did remove the false places of worship and and made the true place of worship in in Jerusalem. But then check this out. The third way, he says, verse 10 of chapter 36. Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. Your God told me to smash you. (laughs) He's sent me. Just give up. You're gone. Your God told me to come in. And then you hear the confidence of of Assyria and the king of Assyria. Look at verse 8 of chapter 36. Now make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. Look, I'll give you 2,000 horses. You're able to supply riders for them. (laughs) I'll give you the modern equivalent of 2,000 fighter jets, but we'll still smash you. We're still more powerful than you. Just come come and just give up now. <laughs> the people of Jerusalem, they know what it's like to be afraid. They know at this moment what it is like to be on the edge, not knowing what to do in life and how to cling on. They know what it's like to be over the edge. They're stuffed. What can they do? And the temptation to give up or to give in is so, so strong. Have you ever felt that way? There's so many things in front of you that just feel insurmountable. How is it there can be a God? How, what do I live for? Is this really worthwhile? Am I giving up my life for this God that does exist or doesn't exist? It's funny, you know, whenever big things come onto the radar of my life, I almost always feel like I've got to face it alone. Have you ever felt that? This is my battle. And I need to deal with this on, on myself. And, and it's like... Others around me, they've never had to face what I've had to face with my background and my history. But coming back to the Word of God and seeing the way history records His people and actions played out reminds me that the battles I face aren't the only battles. That the struggles that I face aren't the only struggles. But here are a real people, the people of God, facing things that are just as hard, if not harder, than what I'm facing. And what we get to see in this story of what went on with these people in Isaiah 36 and 37 is how they actually respond. Now, throughout Isaiah, throughout the Bible, generally when you look at the way God's people respond, it's not good. Because, look, we're dumb. (laughs) Sorry. It's a little bit later that in Isaiah they will talk about the way that we act. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We naturally don't treat God rightly. We don't live His way rightly. We do dumb stuff. Has anyone ever grown up with like sheep on, on their property? A show of hands of sheep farmers. Oh, well done. We got one. Was there more up the back maybe? Oh, this is great. Sheep. Like, you guys, ask these guys. Sheep are dumb. I grew up with sheep. And literally, one will jump for no apparent reason. But every single one behind them has to jump at the same spot. There's nothing there. It's a figment of your imagination, but they just do it. They're like, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what sheep are like. That's what we're like. We do dumb stuff and someone does it at the front and everyone else follows. And that's what happened with Israel. They didn't put God first. They hadn't treated Him rightly. And so they consistently stumble and fall and do dumb things. But occasionally throughout their history, occasionally, God steps in and sets their their eyes and their focus in the right direction to what is right and true. He turns His people from self-centered sentimentality to a truer and stronger hope. And what we have before us today is one of those moments where we see the right way to respond. We get, point number two, a moment of hope. A moment of hope. Isaiah 36, verse 13. Look with me. Then the royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, so everyone could hear. Like he spoke, uh, uh, he spoke Aramaic, but he wanted everyone to hear. So he spoke in Hebrew. Listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord, saying the Lord will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Surrender to me. 
Then every one of you may eat from his own vine, his own fig tree, and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Oh, have you heard that tone before? You won't surely die. If you just take and eat the fruit, I know God might have said that it's not good for you, but God doesn't want you to be like him. You can eat it and you will be able to determine good and evil. You won't surely die. These are the words of Satan. And they're coming to God's people to say, do not trust the Lord your God. Trust in Assyria, for Assyria will give you what you long for. You've been caught up under siege in this city. You've got no water. Come and we give you plentifully. But then we read the way they respond in verse 21. But the people kept silent. They didn't say anything, for the king's command was, don't answer him. Ah, if only Eve had kept silent. If only Adam had said, no, stop, and listen to his king, God. But at this point, God's people listen to the king God has placed over them, who is listening to God himself, and they do not respond. They do not say, okay, we're in. They stand firm, trusting the true and living God. And do not listen to this Assyrian dross. It is the words of their king, whose trust is in the true and living God, that save them from wandering off. Friends, when you're faced with troubles and struggles and trials in life, it's so easy, isn't it, to fall into listening to the popular voice. To listen to the solutions of the world around us and say, look, this is worth putting our trust in. These words that we have, they're worth following. We should just just go with what the world says. And it's always got a ring of truth to it. There's something kind kind of right, but kind of not about the sentimentality the world puts before us. It's like an easy way out, a way of relieving the pain in front of us rather than doing what we think God is saying, rather than doing the right thing. Problem is... Listening to the easy way out, to the way of the world rather than the way of God, never ends well. I was once in a situation where I felt like I needed to take the easy way out. I was on an airplane. Uh, I had a bit of a cold. You know where this is heading. Colds and airplanes don't generally go well together. Um, And so we took off. I was fine. I'm in the air. We were fine. It starts descending and I feel this pressure building inside my head. I I like to think I'm, I'm used to a bit of pain. Now, I've got four kids, and they're all like me, so that's painful. So, you know, I, I'm used to pain, and I can, I can, I can handle this. Anyway, th- anyway, I feel the pressure building, like, behind my eyes, in my sinuses. It's getting worse and worse. I'm starting to cry. Like, it, 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 is, it is excruciating pain. I'm like, how do I stop this? I'm wriggling my ears. I'm doing the yawn, the mouth thing. I must have looked like the weirdest person ever. I'm, like, wriggling this ear and going, how do I stop this? And... As like my head was going to explode. Like I was honestly worried my eye was going to pop out. It just was so painful. I'm like, how do I stop this? What do I do? And in this moment of desperation, I saw my headphones and the little plug on the end of my headphones. I thought maybe if I stick it in my ear, it'll just wriggle something and like the the, the kind of pain will get out and the, the gas will escape. And so I'm trying to put in this moment of desperation, the easy way out. Let's just perforate my eardrum or whatever I've got to do. And I'm trying to put it in, but thankfully it didn't fit. At that moment, the hostess walked past. I said, can I please have a tissue? She had some. She gave them to me. I blew my nose and then it just went and I'm like, thank you, Lord, but man, I thought that was going to be my eye on the back of the seat in front of me. Like, it, it was crazy. But the funny thing is how ridiculously desperate we get to stop the pain when it's right in front of us, rather than trust what we know to be true. I knew you shouldn't stick anything bigger than your elbow in your ear. That's what my mum taught me growing up. And I could never get my elbow in, so I figured that was nothing. Yet here I was going, man, I need to stop this, and we do dumb things. But for Jerusalem at this point, they didn't do the dumb thing. They, we see a response to the trials of life that actually makes a difference. Rather than listening to pure sentimentality that won't change a thing, we see a phenomenal trust that changes everything. Look at verse 14 of chapter 37. 37 verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands about what Assyria was about to do. He read it. He hears they're about to wipe them out and crush them. Then he went up to the Lord's temple, spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. What does the king do? 
He sees his concern. He's about to smash us. There's a 20-pound gorilla at the front door. We're about to be wiped out. I don't know what to do, but he walks up to God. He lays out the letter, literally, on the table and says to God, this. He lays out his concerns before God at the symbolic place of God's presence. In complete desperation and dependence, he brings his life to the only one that can do anything in this situation. No one else can help. There is only one that can actually do something about this. Have you ever noticed that often God is the last person we turn to? We try everything else first. Like it's Father's Day, right? And I'm a dad. And the last thing I'll do is read the instruction book. There's no way in the world I'm going to concede that I need an instruction book to any piece of furniture or present or thing that I've been given. I'll try and work it out myself first, right? Because that's the way to do it. And then if I can't work it out, I might look up quietly on YouTube and just see if someone else has got it there. Worst case, I have to ask someone, but I'm not reading what they told me. I don't need that. You might not be like that. You might not have that same DIY mentality, but I think we do. We want to solve problems ourselves and say, look, I fixed this. I did it. That's not what Hezekiah does. The king of Jerusalem, he goes to the one who can fix it. And that's where we see a prayer of faith. Point number three, a prayer of faith. And I think this is one of the best prayers in the whole of the Bible. You ready? 37 verse 16. Lord of armies, God of Israel. Enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it's true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands. So they've destroyed them. But now, Lord our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God. And you alone. What a man. What a prayer. His concern, if you notice, isn't primarily for his own safety and comfort and deliverance. His concern, did you see, is for the glory of God. God, I don't want your name to be maligned on earth. I don't want the other nations to think that you aren't God because I know you are God. So please, for your name's sake, for the sake of your plans and your purposes, act. Not for me, but for you. Oh, how different would my outlook on life be if my primary concern was for God's glory rather than my imminent comfort? How different it would be if I ran to God rather than running to myself to try and solve problems and situations. Imagine the different perspective I'd have to sit back and see these things that are going on in front of me as part of God's overarching plan and seeing my place within that to bring about His plans and purposes no matter what. A plan that he's won in his son, Jesus. Because we have a clearer word than Hezekiah. Jesus died and risen again. He's paid the price for us. Death has been defeated. And so, as we come and, and we come to our Father, we know the plan. We've seen in history that it's happened. And so we can stand trusting him, knowing our future is secure. And we can stand as servants of God no matter what. No matter what the cost, no matter what happens to us, we can say, Lord, my life is in your hands. But there's something even more powerful than just changing the way we view a situation that happens here. Far better than sentimentality and worldly wisdom. There's something amazing that happens because of this. Look at verse 21. 37 verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. God answers straight away. The Lord, the God of Israel says, because you prayed to me about King Sennacherib of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it you have mocked and blasphemed Assyria? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? Look out. For God is coming him, the true and living God. Why? Notice why? Because 
you saved. Because you saved. Not because you were good enough or you did enough or any sort of thing to do with you other than you depended on the one who is in control. What do we see here? The God of the universe longs to hear your prayers. He longs to answer your prayers. Now, not always with what we ask, but always with what we need and always in line with His plans. Oh, how different it is to align our lives to the plans and purposes of God rather than the plans and purposes of ourselves. But notice the reason God answered was because Jerusalem humbled herself and depended on Him. Hezekiah came not looking for answers, but trusting in the one who had answers. Because you prayed to me. The God of the universe is the God that hears your prayers. He longs to hear from you. Far better than wishful thinking or sentimentality, this God acts and changes history. He has the power to change. Always in line with His will and for His glory. Do you trust that God is in control? Do you trust as you see Him work throughout history that He is the one who brings about whatever He sees fit and that He longs to hear from us? Time and time again, if you just call out, if you just come, if you just speak to me, I'm willing to. How are you going at praying to God? How are you going at bringing the concerns of life and the big picture issues of life to the, to the God of the universe? Are you coming to Him and laying down your pains and struggles before Him and saying, Lord, you know why this is going on. Please take it away, but not my will, but yours. How are you going at seeing that the most important thing is not your individual situation, but the glory of God? And the place that God's glory is most clearly seen is the cross. Where God the Son, the King from the line of David, came and suffered, came and bled and died for us. Friends, when we pray, God hears us. Listen to the response in verse 35, chapter 37. God says, I will defend this city. And rescue it for my sake, and for the sake of my servant David. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Not Jerusalem, not anyone else, but the angel of God, gone flat. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh until he was killed. Friends, please recognize this story of history and the power of God, that He brings about His plans and purposes. Recognize the importance of coming to Him when faced with issues that seem insurmountable and unchangeable. Come to Him and trust Him as the King who's sent His Son to die in our place and has dealt with our rebellion, our own stupidity as sheep that have gone astray. And trust Him and live for Him. Today is Father's Day, right? It's a day where we, we celebrate our dads and being dads for some of us. One of the most fatherly things that dads can do is to listen to their children. Because that's what God does. He longs to hear us speak to Him. And one of the most childlike things we can do, and I don't mean like infantile and dumb, I mean actually being a child. One of the most childlike things we, we can do is to cry out to our Father is to speak to Him as our dad. So today, will you come to this God as His children? Or will you come to Him as His enemy? That's the choice we have. Will you put before Him your concerns and troubles and ask Him to act in line with His plans and purposes like Hezekiah does that day for God's glory? Will you speak and ask and pray in line with God's plans and purposes? 
one of our current concerns as Christians and as a nation. And one of the things we as Christians need to stand up and speak on is, is an issue that's in front of us right now. And it's the issue of the death of the unborn. Our legal system, the politics of our day today, has kind of come at us with this new law reform that we've got. And how do we think about it as Christians? Should we respond? Should we stand up and care for for the unborn and for women and for men that are going through all sorts of trials and struggles? Should I? Shouldn't I? What is going on? How do we respond? I want to help us to think through this issue because it's one that's presenting us. I want us to help through, what does the Bible say about this issue? What does it say about when a person is a person? Because that's ultimately what this is about. Is, is a fetus uh, a, a person, a human, a child, or are they just part of a clump of cells? We well, to understand how we should respond, and if we ought to respond to this thing that's in front of us, we have to understand what the Bible says about that. So, helpfully, Psalm 139 says this, For it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your wondrous work, you are, your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. As we read that, we see that we matter as a person, we are people before we are out of the womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I was a me before I was out. There's, there's a personhood, a human reality there. More than that, we hear David say in Psalm 55, indeed, Psalm 55, sorry, Psalm 51, verse 55. If you're taking notes. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. He had moral responsibility before God, before he was out of the womb, at conception. So there's, there's more going on here from God's Word. It, it's saying that we're not just human when we're out. We're a, we're a we and a human when we're in. And there's something at this very passage that we look at. It's something I hadn't seen before until I was going through this. And King Hezekiah, when he's describing the oncoming attack of Assyria, he describes it in poetic terms like this. Look at 37 verse 3. This is what Hezekiah says. Today is a day of distress, rebuke and disgrace as this nation comes to Jerusalem. It's as if children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. Now, you get the picture. A woman in labor, the child's ready to come out, but there's no strength to see it happen. Here's Jerusalem. They're about to be invaded, but they've got no strength to withstand. They've been standing to the end of the last man standing, but it's just too late. But if you understand what it's saying is, this is a terrible tragedy. That a child that's at the point of birth, who cannot be delivered, is, is, is shocking. It's a disgrace. It's horrible. The, the idea here of the Bible is that people matter, whether we're in the womb or out. And I'm a person from the point of conception. Now, the current political issue facing us here, is, is this, this is not another nation invading us. The issue behind all of this as we think through what is this abortion reform law and how do we respond as Christians is ultimately the big problem is the reign of sin. It's humanity's consistent desire to turn away from God and to live our way rather than, than His. The enemy is our own rebellious hearts and our own selfish thoughts that say, I want to live my way rather than God's way. And the evidence of that is the fact that we make decisions as people and as a country to put ourselves at the center of the world rather than God. We do it all the time. Exactly what Eve did in the garden and Adam, this fruit looks better. I'll take it rather than listen to God's word. Cain kills Abel because he thinks he knows better than God, even though God said sin is crouching at the door. We are people that are broken. And so we need someone else to step into our world to help us work through the issues and to hear from God in this. The issue at the heart of this abortion issue is sinfulness, mine and yours and each of us. Now, I'm aware abortion is a complex issue. There's all sorts of hurt and, and circumstances and situations that are involved. And I know there'll be many among us who've 
been through and felt the effects of abortion for a variety of reasons and the impact of it on, on their lives. And I know it's hard. This is a hard topic to talk through because there are so many things we wrestle with in this. But I want to be clear, it's, it's, it's mothers and fathers and parents and grandparents and children and the unborn that are seriously affected by this issue. This is not trivial. And I don't pretend to speak in a trivial way. But none of us have treated God rightly. All of us deserve His judgment for turning our backs on Him. But here's the great news. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, Jesus' forgiveness is available to us. Jesus died in our place despite our rebellion while we were his enemies. He took the penalty that we deserve. And if we would just take him at his word and trust him, all of that is washed away. The guilt and shame we carry, the things of the past, Jesus offers forgiveness and says, come to me and find your rest in me. We need to hear that clearly. I'm not being judgmental of, of anyone. If you've been struggling in silence on this issue, please come and chat to me. Come and chat to, to someone or a female who's here tonight and, and talk about it and bring it out in the open. And we'd love to pray with you and walk alongside you. If you're thinking through this issue right now, we'd love to chat with you and talk about options that are there and help you to see that God loves you. Jesus has died for you. If you trust in Him, He has forgiven you. But the issue that faces us is, is, is a law reform. It's the government saying, we're going to change the way that our laws work and classifying what is a, a illegal, a criminal action and what isn't. And the current laws, as we, we see them, as they've come through, you'll see there's a, a couple of handouts in your handout. There's, there's one that's an insert and one that's a link that you can go to. Fantastic information there to look at and see and read through what the law says. Let me just really quickly outline what this new law allows. The new law, if it is passed, says that a woman could get an abortion with minimal impact, minimal input from a health practitioner, right up until the point of just before birth, even in birth, should you decide that this child is unwanted. The, the new law means that, say I had a 15-year-old daughter and she gets pregnant, she can go to the school nurse without chatting to her father or mother, she can express the distress that she has and the school nurse can perform an abortion because she's classed as a health practitioner. Not a doctor, could be a dietitian. And they're, help, they're the people they need to get consent or helpfulness from and, and no parental input. It, it, actually, the new law makes it possible to abort a child based on them having a disability and saying, well, we don't think that that's fair to bring this child into the world because they have a disability not thinking about what the child wants. I'm not saying that, that all disabled people don't like living. It also allows abortion on the basis of sex, gender. That, that, that as parents go, well, actually, we've already got three girls. We don't want a fourth. And all the stats show that it's consistently the girls that lose. Generally, across the world, in places that allow this, there's, there's more boys born. And it's the girls that are aborted. Now, there's a number of, of ramifications of, of this current law, the likelihood that uh, doctors won't be able to say no uh, to performing an abortion down the track, it will become a right. There's, there's a whole heap of things that are based in this that mean that we need to think through it carefully as citizens and also as Christians. So what do we do when we're faced with this situation? Well, if, I saw, if Isaiah 36 has taught us anything, I said we pray. And so we come to the God who is in control and say, Lord, you know this bill. You know what is going on. You know our hearts to care for the women that are going through these horrible decisions and, and the unborn. And we need to ask God to act. 33,300 to 800 abortions happen per year. Do you know how many people that impacts in our country? We come to God and we pray. We put it before Him. That the world around us would see the solution. The solution isn't just to stop this going on or just to care for people working through it. The solution truly is in line with God's will and God's glory for people to come and trust in Jesus. To see that He is the answer. I mean, that's the way our human hearts are changed. That's what we ought to be on about. 
So how do we do that? What do we do? Well, we need to listen to our king. And in this instance, unlike the people in Hezekiah's time who the king told to be silent, we need to speak up. We need to be bold and trust our reputations to our God rather than to our society. Now, that doesn't mean we speak up rudely or harshly or arrogantly. Not at all. Please, please do not be an arrogant tool. Hear me in saying that. We want to love people and care for them. But let me help you to think through this in a couple of points. How do we know biologically, just from science, a child is a child, it's actually alive? Well, here's what we know in biology. Number one, I'm going to give you three points. The embryo, a fertilized egg, an embryo is living. Number one, it's living. We know an unborn child is alive because it fits the definition of an organism, a living organism. It's made of one or more cells. It undergoes cellular reproduction, meaning it grows. It turns food into energy. It metabolizes. It responds to stimuli and maintains a stable internal environment. It fits. It's, it's, it's alive. Whatever this embryo is, it's alive. Secondly, an embryo is distinct. An embryo is distinct from the mother. The unborn is not part of the woman's body. It's attached to the mother, yes, but it's not part of her. It's got its own unique genetic code that differs from its mum and its dad. Unlike any other part that is part of us that carries our DNA, this embryo does not. It is distinct from the mother, not part of her. And the third thing that we know is that the embryo is whole. Even at the single cell stage, it's a whole human being. Right? The unborn is not part of another organism like our skin cells are, part of, of us and our whole organ. It, it's, it's a whole entity in and of itself, and its parts work together in a coordinated manner to ensure its overall functioning. Right? An embryo is not kind of constructed piece by piece with a bit more being bolted on like some Lego block. But an embryo drives its own development. It happens from within. It drives to see that grow and form and shape. So biologically, we know that this, this embryo is alive because it is, it, it is living, it's distinct, and it's whole. So then, why wouldn't we call it a human? Why wouldn't we say this is a human being? And, and New Zealand law says that um, the unborn embryo is, or fetus is a child, but not a human. They're only a human once they are born, once they come out. They're, they're, they're a child, but not a human. It makes that distinction, which is scientifically odd. Now, there's a helpful argument put forward by a guy called Stephen Swartz. It's not a religious argument at all. And it, and it looks at four areas. And there's a good acronym called SLED. It helps you remember it. You can write this down, SLED. And it helps you recognize the difference between an embryo and, and, and a baby and, and the discussions and a human and the discussions that work between it. So, some people say that an embryo is not a human because of size. First S, size. I mean, it's tiny. How could that be a human being being so small? But since when does size as a human determine our value? Like, do we go around to all the short people in the world and go, yeah, you're not as valuable as me, I'm tall. Like, no, we can't do that. We can't say, like, and if we did make that, well, where do we draw the line, okay? Um, okay, at that point there, that's the size where it matters. How, how, do, how, how can you do that? Now, size doesn't make a difference on its worth. The second one is L, level of development. People will say an embryo is not fully developed yet. It's, it's still got to grow. How do you work out when growth is enough? I mean, humans develop once they're out of the womb as well. Lots of us are still developing. Lots of us have got a long way to go, like me, right? We're still trying to think through um, what it looks like to be an adult. So do we then draw a line? Well, where do we draw the line? So it's quite difficult to draw a line anywhere else other than conception. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary. Yet that, that hasn't developed enough to be human yet mm, there. Why? Why at those points? And if we draw it arbitrarily, what stops us from going, well, the infant doesn't really know much yet? Now, lots of us balk at that, but it's the same logic. <laughs> Size, level of development. Number three, environment and location. People say that because the, the embryo uh, or the fetus is in the womb, that it's not human until it's out of the womb. And you're like, 
what difference does its location make? 25 centimeters. And it makes all the difference between whether they have value as a human or not. See, where you are has no being on who you are. I saw a video recently that was a little bit in jest, talking about the magical powers of the birth canal. And I actually kind of said, it, it's weird, but the way our world looks at this is, our world says, well, once you're in the womb, before you've passed through the birth canal, you're, you're, you're a fetus beforehand, and once you pass through, you're a human. There must be some magical power in the birth canal. Like, how is it that that happens? And it's kind of a satirical look at why, why do we think that? Does location really matter? Size, level of development, environment and location. And the fourth one is degree of dependency. Degree of dependency. The argument goes that the fetus is still dependent on the mother. They're not an independent being totally. But my children, <laughs> one year, at one month, they're still dependent on their mother and father. In fact, children are called dependents. <laughs> like, that's what we call them. And so... At what point do you draw that line? It becomes very difficult logically as we work through this to go, how can I draw the line between this? And what we're actually doing is we're doing some fancy footwork. We're moving around to try and make it okay. Now, I want to, I want to say quite clearly, there's some helpful arguments to talk through with people, but please, please be careful with them. Like, do not talk about these things with any sense of moral superiority. I hope I haven't come across in that way at all. And if I have, I'm sorry. It's not what I'm meaning to do. I'm just trying to think through what does this mean and how does this work? We need to be coming across with compassion. And people that are trying to make a decision around a child that they've fallen pregnant with and not knowing what to do, like, I've been there. We're about to move to New Zealand and plant a church. We're about to move to a different country where we knew four people. And we fell pregnant with an unplanned child. And we were like, what do we do? And you know what came into my head? It wasn't godly. How will this work for planting a church? Maybe for the glory of God, we should not have this child. And man, things go through your head. I've been there. I know the struggles or some of, and they're, they're nothing compared to some struggles that people go through. Nothing at all. So please have compassion in this area. Please speak to people with love and try and hear what they're going through and chat to them about it. Listen to others' points of view. There's, there's a lot of hurt. Abortion causes immense hurt. Not only for the child, but for the woman and quite often a man that's involved as well. I want to read to you before we end on some action points forward. Some of the pain that women have expressed that have been through this just have a listen. This is a mother of four. I've paid the ultimate price. I have to live with myself. I have to look at myself and know it was my choice. I did it. The worst part of the pain is that there's no one to share it with. Not a day goes by where I don't think about it. I can't believe I did it. I wish I could change everything and go back. Now, I don't read that to shame anyone, but to hear this woman's plea to say, this will affect you more than you know. Let me read you Katrina. The lady who met me at the local family planning service treated me as rudely as anyone could treat someone. There was no caring or concern in her manner. No options were presented to me. She said I was stupid to get pregnant and I was 18 and at university, so she presumed I wanted an abortion. I remember asking about the difference between a local and a general anesthetic. And she said, have a local, as then you'll know what happened and never make the mistake again. I asked her at the time about other options. She said, do you want to finish uni? I said, of course. She replied, well, you can't have a child. I don't remember making the decision. It's just that this was what I was expected to do. It seemed that there would be no support and no future for me if I were to have the child. Friends, as Christians, we need to stand by love and care for women. We need to speak up for the unborn, this great injustice. We need to speak the gospel into the world to see our hearts and the hearts of others changed. We need to do it because Jesus did it for us. See, on our own, we're helpless. We were without hope, deserving death and judgment and, and hell. But then Jesus came and lived and died in our place he paid the ultimate price so that we might be rescued from death. That is what He has done. 
what we want in this country and across the globe is that for these women and these unborn children to hear the life-giving news of Jesus, that changes eternity. And then the comfort of knowing that those who come to Him are forgiven sinners with an amazing Father. At this point, I think it's right to do what Hezekiah does. Just to stop and pray before our great God and then we'll quickly answer some questions. Father God, as we feel heavy about this issue, about the pain that people go through, the deliberation, the guilt that is felt, and for the unborn children, we ask that you would give us the courage to do what Jesus has done, to stand up and proclaim the truth in a loving way. Help us to hold out the hope of the gospel. Help us to speak of Jesus and what we have been forgiven from and to not come across as judgmental, but to be people that recognize that we deserve your judgment too, for we've turned our backs on you. We pray that by some way you would see this whole issue be resolved across the whole earth. That's massive, Lord, but we long to see uh, these children who are not yet born and the women and the men who are suffering through these decisions come to a saving knowledge of your Son and to be able to, to live so they have the option of responding to you. So give us wisdom in how to act. Fill us full of grace and love and truth. And help us to see that as we speak this truth into your world, that it is for your glory. It is to see the world operating as it ought to be. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, um, a few questions. Let me try and answer some. We'll see how this goes. Um, firstly, there, there's an outline that we have uh, that you'll get on the way out. You can grab with more details in it. So you've only got one outline there. Um, we'll have them at, at the back on, on the way out. So you can grab them as you leave to help you think through the legal aspects of that. Uh, number one, uh, did God speak to the Assyrian king? Or was that just taunting? Yeah, it's really interesting in, in 36 verse 10, when the Assyrian king says, God sent me to do it. <laughs> Maybe he did. I mean, we read throughout Isaiah that... Um, that God said He would send Assyria to wipe them out, but at this point, didn't really do it, did He? Maybe God sent him in to reduce his pride. Uh, what we hear is the Assyrian king and his advisors say that, and so the question is, did He, did He not? I don't know if it matters either way. Uh, God could have, uh, but did He? I don't know, but in the end, God was sovereign over it, and that's where we, we kind of see the solution to that. Next question. Uh, is the Assyrian field commander in Isaiah 36, 16, perhaps twisting Micah 4, 4? Is this an example of Satan twisting Scripture to try and deceive God's people? Yeah, I don't know uh, Micah 4, 4 from memory. I'm glad that you do. This is amazing. Keep reading your Bible and understanding this. It's great. Let's have a quick look. Uh, Micah 4, 4 says... Each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him, for the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Um, I think, here's me shooting from, so take this with a grain of salt, check this later. I think you see throughout the Scriptures a picture of sitting under the grapevine and and drinking wine uh, from the vine is a picture of God's salvation. It's a a picture of uh, entering into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey and, and drinking from wine was a sign of celebration. And so I think what's happening here is you're seeing a common symbol for God's future that He has promised His people. And so what's happening, uh, I don't think it's like a vine, it's a twist on what happened in the garden from the fruit of the tree. Um, But we're seeing Satan promise what God has promised Satan's way. Next question. Is the angel of the Lord referring to Jesus in Isaiah 37, 36? Uh, thank you, it says the angel of the Lord wiped them out. I don't think it is referring to Jesus. The word angel just means messenger. Was it an angel, a, a celestial being, uh, those that are kind of not of this earth? I think the Bible does talk about, probably. Uh, we don't know any more than what it says there. And sometimes I think it's trickier to go in and read more into these things and think, oh, that was definitely Jesus. Um, what we know it was, it was an angel of the Lord. God sent. God did this. Uh, it could have even been a person. Could have. Someone did it in the sleep, just happened. Who knows? Um, who knows how that happens, but I don't necessarily think it's, it's Jesus there. All right, next question. How can we be sinful at birth when God made us in our mother's womb? 
That would imply God created something sinful. Um, thank you. Helpful question. Um, the big concept behind this uh, is a concept called federal headship. You could write that down. Federal headship. It's a kind of a big word that I'll unpack quickly now. Um, if you were born in, if you were born in New Zealand, if you were conceived and about to come out in New Zealand, you, you get all the privileges of being called a New Zealander. You get student loans. You get to be out of work. Uh, whereas if you're born in another country, you don't necessarily get those. Um, now, you didn't make a choice at that point. You were born in this country because of the decision of your parents. You had nothing to do with that. And yet, you still get to live with the benefits of being born in this country. What we see in the Bible is that every child of Adam is born at war with God because their father is at war with God. So, if you're born in a country at war with another, no matter what you've done, you're still born because of who your mum and dad are at war with the other country until you leave that war. Fly the white flag and say, I'm, I'm out. So what we're seeing is that biblically, every child of Adam is affected by the reality of sinfulness. Now, it's not that God formed us in a broken way. We were made in the image of God. Uh, but the reality is that because of human sinfulness, just like the world isn't the way it should be, it's groaning, uh, Romans tells us, because of um, people not ruling it rightly, so humanity aren't as we ought to be. Uh, God didn't make us imperfect, we naturally choose uh, to not live His way, and we do that because Adam is our dad. And so there's that reality, if we're happy to accept the blessings of our parents' decision to have us born in a country where we can have the blessings... We need to accept the reality of the negative things that come from our parents, uh, like their bad features of their faces, you know, that's the reality, um, or their good ones. Uh, so, we need to see here that those born of Adam are born in that way. Uh, and so, in Romans 5, we see that there are two types of humanity. There are those that are born of Adam, and those that are then reborn in Christ. Two humanities, all in Adam sin and therefore die, all who then come to Jesus and trust Him are forgiven and live. Okay, come and ask me more questions on that. That's a quick answer. Uh, last question. Is there a way to know when to stand up for what I believe and when not to? Yes, that's a great question. Number one, pray. Pray and ask God. I think that's part of it, is saying to God, I mean, God wants us to pray to Him. Uh, and James, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. God limits His plans and purposes in the world, it seems, to some of our prayers. It, James doesn't, it can't mean if you do not ask, you'll get it anyway. If you do not have, you do not, you do not have because you do not ask. God acts here because Hezekiah prays. Now, it's part of God's plan and, and God prompted him to do that. And there's a whole heap of God's sovereignty in that situation. But we need to come to God and pray. That's, that's an action of coming to Him and, and depending on Him. So, yes, stand up for what God's Word says. Not just for what we believe, but what God's Word says and is fitting with His plans and purposes. And then you've got to think through what's going on, because there's lots of injustices in the world. Like, which ones do we spend our time going for? Well, the, the, biggest, the biggest injustice in the world, if you want to think about what's not just, is the perfect Son of God dying in my place. And then the world not recognizing that He died for me and going, ah, oh, I'm going to ignore Him. God died in your place. And so that's why we want to help the world to know, come and trust Jesus. Jesus died for you. Now, other issues that we come to, we want to see what the Word says. We want to sit under the Scriptures and see what they're saying about how we should um, live. Now, in the world we're in, we live in a democracy where we have an opportunity to influence government, to put forward what we believe. That's what the governmental system we, we live in is. Um, and so it's, it's not a monarchy or a dictatorship. And so we can operate within that and, and bring up our concerns in ways that are right and good. Now, where do we spend our time? Here's the question. How do I spend my time? Well, here's the thing. We, we want to stand up and speak of God and for God in every single opportunity. Let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Be always ready to give an answer for the reason that you believe. So we need to stand up and point people to Jesus. That is, that is the key because that is the thing that will change people's eternity. Now, why is abortion something that we should think through and, and help? Well, for the unborn, we want to give them an option to, to hear the news of the gospel. This matters. This is important. And for women going through these pains and the guilt that is there, we want to point them and men alongside them to Jesus and the forgiveness that is offered 
like us. We're sinners and broken. So we want to point people to the gospel. So keep asking yourself, what is the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension? How does it impact these issues? And if there is, in a sense, that is a big way, then we want to stand for that. We want to stand and love who God has given us. Now, there's no clear list in the Bible. These are the issues you stand for. These are the ones you don't. You've got to think through the principles that are there and go, well, what does this mean? And where, what does my role fit with church and state? And when do I speak? It, it's tricky. And that's partly why we want to gather together as a church and sit under the Word. It's why you want to get together in connect groups, to sit under that and bounce it off one another and talk through the hows and whys of what we're doing and, and be there to encourage one another and pray for one another as we face this. Super, super important. So I want to encourage you, stand up for what God says. Stand up for the glory of His name. Friends, I think the best way to respond is to come to Him and pray and then to sing and stand for the glory of His name. So let's pray together. Lord God, we ask that tonight, as we think about our prayers, You would move us from people who are self-centered to like Hezekiah was at this point, so centered on Your plans and purposes and glory. Help us move from small-mindedness and self-focusedness to your big plans and purposes. We pray in this area of this current law reform and those going through pain and struggle that you would help us to love and care and walk alongside people. Give us boldness to speak of Jesus, the ultimate solution to all the world's problems, and to love people and point them to the truth of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we pray that Jesus' name will be held high in this university, in this city, in this country, and on your earth. The people would see him for who he is. And we pray the scary prayer that you would use us in that. That we would place our lives at the foot of the cross for the sake of Jesus' name. Pray this in his name. Amen.